For the love of Christ compels us. Since we have reached this conclusion, if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all. So that those who live should should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. From now on, then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we know we no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Would you join me in prayer? Father, there's so much in this passage that we can rejoice in. But Father, just for this moment and today, God, I just, I pray that your people would see the great love that your son Jesus Christ demonstrated. I pray that love would not just be a concept or a category that we catalog in our minds. That, Father, many of us have been in church so long that the love of Christ doesn't move us in any way. But, Father, I pray that today, through the power of your spirit, would you allow your word to broaden our understanding of the the length and the width and the height and the depth of your love for us. Father, would your love, as Paul says, would it compel us, Father, to actually live lives that would please you, God, that we would make it our aim to please you at all costs. And Father, more than anything, I pray that you would remind us that you're worth it, that you alone are worth that. Father, I pray that in my helplessness, Father, I stand here not being able to offer anyone anything, Lord, of any help in and of my own strength. But Father, I pray that you would guard me from error, that you allow me to be faithful to your word, that I would simply hold before your people what you've said and and trust by faith that as your word goes forth, it will not return unto you void, that you have in mind specific ways in which you want your words to be applied to every single person in this room's life. And I pray that we as your people, that we would stand expectant, that we would be ready and eager, Lord, to hear from you because we know that you are the bread of life you are the only one that can satisfy us you know exactly what we need father would you help us father would you be with us we ask it all in jesus name amen maybe seated I used to think that going first was the hardest thing to do. 
especially in a series like this where we're talking about our DNA as a church. But one of the things I found out is that going last actually is a lot harder. Each week you get to hear about the ways in which God is speaking to us through Pastor Mo and Pastor John. And as I came to this text, I felt like, I felt this pressure of, God, how can I make this clever? How can I make something that's so familiar to us seem brand new? And it was in the preparation that God began to remind me that what his people really need and what I really need is not something new, but really to be reminded of the old. Really to be stirred up within me, um, something that I probably had put aside and act as though that was elementary truths, but in all actuality, that's the very thing that anchors and motivates and steers me and us in the direction that God would have for us. And so as we talk about mission, as we even planned out this DNA series, the goal and the heart and the prayer was for us as a church to be reminded of what God began. And as we're reminded of what God has begun, then we can hopefully see where God is leading us. It's impossible to remain faithful when you don't even know the course in which you're on. And so in order to look forward, we always have to go back. We have to go back to why does Cornerstone even exist? Why this neighborhood? Why this community? Why did God place each and every one of you here? who are members of our church, and even those who are not, why is he drawing you here today? I think the one of the reasons that, or one of the ways that we've tried to do this is to share the story of how almost 10 years ago, four families moved into this community with a heart simply to love people and to share the love of Christ with people. But I think if we started there, we wouldn't be accurately telling the story. We might even, for some, you may think that Cornerstone started four years ago. When Pastor John and Pastor Tripp and Pastor Mo, when we came together and we burdened for this neighborhood, burdened to see the gospel go forth in this community, it felt as though the Lord was leading us to gather and organize and come together. I think if we started there, we wouldn't be telling the whole story. The only thing that really makes sense about why we at Cornerstone even exist today is that God had in mind this church from the very beginning of the age. God saw in his redemptive and all-knowing plan that there was a need for for this community and the people in it to know him. That when God looked at this community, he did not look at it in the same way that you and I probably had for years. As a community unreachable, as a neighborhood, unimpressive, as people who have been discarded, overlooked. But yet when God looked on this community, he saw hope. He saw souls. He didn't see it like we do only focusing on outward appearance. No, he knew that if I could step in, well, not if I could, but All it would take is for me to step in and I can change it all. God looks on this community and neighborhoods like this, cities like Atlanta, all across the world, and he looks upon it and he says, I will have compassion on them. I will have mercy. 
I will take those who have tasted my love and I will plant them in this neighborhood to be an expression, to be those who would call others to know me in the same way. Cornerstone exists because out of God's heart and his compassion for those of us in here today, he looks on those who don't yet know him and says, I want to have compassion. I want them to know of my love. I want them to know of this same mercy. And then he calls you and I as recipients to go. There's something about knowing that somebody loves you that will completely alter your life. I remember when I first knew I loved my wife, uh, a few of us, we would have these rival competitions with the girls in our Bible study. And one day we decided, hey, we're going to go ahead and get some balloons and we're going to go and knock on the door. And when they open it, we're going to throw all these balloons at these girls in a Christian way. And so we knock on the door and You know, they don't really know that we're there. They recognize some of the faces, and we just start launching balloons, launching balloons, only to find out that they were actually having Bible study. And so we run away giddy and get in our cars, and we go back to our apartment, and um, me and Amanda, we were talking at the time, but Amanda, she's not my wife. She's not even my girlfriend yet. And she calls me and lays into me in a holy way, (laughs) as if we had been married for 20 years. And so at that point, I knew I had messed up. And so I had to think about how do I make this right? How do I make this better? And at the time, I had a Casio keyboard and, you know, I had been learning some, you know. I had been learning Ribbon in the Sky riffs and, and so I was like, all right, I'm going to write a song. And so I penned this song for her, asking for her forgiveness, putting my R&B vibes on. And I knock on her apartment with my Casio. And it wasn't one of the small ones. It was one of the big joints. So I had my stand and my Casio and I set it up. She's like, what are you here for? And so I play her song. And long story short, she forgave me. 13 years married, five kids. Something worked, right? Amen. There's something about love that will make you do crazy things. Real love will have a broke college student saving up all of their extra money for an entire year only to purchase the one they love, the ring that they think they deserve. True love will have someone interested, someone desiring of another person, a man or a woman, probably a man, who would say, I want to be closer to this person across the country, so I'm going to quit my job and sell what I have and move across the other side of the world just to be close to this person. I know actual stories where that happened and there was a lot of risk in that. And fortunately for them, it worked out. True love will have you do crazy things. True love will have Dwayne Wayne showing up at his ex's Whitley's wedding. The woman that he finally realized he couldn't live without. And as she begins to, as he reaches the point to where he realizes that she could commit her life to another man, he shows up and he prances down that aisle. And at first he kind of cowers and as everyone looks, he begins to sit down. 
But there comes a moment where they be, they're about to, sh- uh, about to exchange vows that he realizes, I can't live without this woman. And so after the pastor says to her, Whitley, will you have this man? He gets up. He says, Whitley, will you? And Byron, her, her fiance at the time, looks up. He's like, man, stop. I'm sorry, Byron. But Whitley, will you have me? Will you? And he repeats all these lines and he ends with the famous, baby, please. Right? <laughs> to which he only hears from Whitley, I will. Right? <laughs> Love will have you do some crazy things. But why? I think in one sense because the person whom you've set your affections on, the person who you've chosen to love is worth giving up everything for and everything to. However, there's always a risk in that because you don't know if that love will actually be reciprocated. You can, with the best intentions, choose to love somebody, but there's no guarantee that they will actually love you back. We like to love with no risk. Think back at middle school or elementary school. When you liked a girl, what is the first thing that you did? You asked her friend, hey, does she like me? So that when you asked her out, you knew beyond a doubt, okay, I've got 100% chances, right? My odds are in my favor. Some of you engaged, now married folks, I've heard stories where before there even is a ring on the finger, you've already started to map your lives out. Oh, it got real quiet right there, right? <laughs> Baby, um, we've been dating for a while, and where do you see this thing going? Baby, we've been talking for a while, and, and I know this is hypothetical, but if I asked you to marry me, would you say yes? Yeah, yeah, sure. It makes asking the question so much easier, right? Because there's an assurance that I know that this person loves me just as much. However, I think sometimes we do the same thing with God. I think that for some of us in here, we may find ourselves where we're not fully ready to be all in for Jesus. We find that we, though we will recite that, God, I love you more than anything. God, I know that you love me, that you died on the cross for my sins. We will recite those things, but yet there's still a part of us that's holding on to a few areas of our lives. We functionally live as those who would say, God, you can have this, this, and this, and this, but hands off on that. There's this ease for us to sometimes trust God with our eternity, but not to trust him with our day-to-day, our present reality. I think I could even go as far to say, Some of us would question if really giving my all to God, if I look back in 10 years, will I feel as though I've wasted my life? Would I look back at all that I had to lay down and would I really say beyond a doubt that it was worth it? We're far too spiritual in here to actually admit that. But our hearts, our hearts, we know, man, I I find myself at that place. I find myself questioning if giving everything to God is really worth it. Will I have wasted my time? 
and at, in the midst of those doubts, in the midst of those questions at times, one thing that we're going to look at today is we're going to look at the Apostle Paul. And there were those within the church, there were those outside of the church that had crept in, and they had looked at the Apostle's life and they had said, Paul, you're crazy. Paul, you're deranged. Why would you give your life for Christ in this way? Paul, it doesn't take all that. God, what God really wants for you is comfort. What God really wants for you is convenience. Paul, what God really wants for you is the nice house and the 1.5 kids and the, and the banging career and the six-figure salary. Paul, that's what God wants for you. Why would you forsake those things only to make God known? We make God known too. And we have all of these things. Be like us. Paul will tell us, though, that there's something. You want to know why I live the way that I live? You don't want to know why I'm controlled to lay out everything before God? Let me show you. Let me tell you about it. Paul is wanting us, my, really my only main point for today, my only real takeaway that I feel the text is trying to beat, in, beat on the head for us and help us to see is that a life lived for Jesus is a life never wasted. A life lived for Jesus is a life never wasted. You may not have those things because God has not promised you those things. But to live for Christ, to trust him fully, to give up everything for him is so worth it. It's so worth it. And you will not be like the one who at the very end of the day stands with his maker and you will not look back on anything that you had to give up and say, God, those things were better than you. The text begins at verse 11 where he says, for the love of Christ compels us. And I want to stop there. One, I want to specifically target in one word that he uses here, and he says us. Paul is not saying that the love of God or the love of Christ compels me per se, but he's saying, no, the love of Christ compels us. That when I think of what God has done, it doesn't just apply singularly to an individual, but it, it applies to an entire community. It requires to an entire group of individuals who, who as well have experienced and benefited this very love. And so he says, the love of Christ compels us. Well, let's look at what Paul's life looked like. What did Paul give himself to? I think in chapter 6, moving ahead a little bit, he says in verse 10, let me read it for you. He says, instead as God's ministers, him being one, but there being many. We commend ourselves in everything by great endurance, by afflictions, by hardships, by difficulties, by beatings, by imprisonments, by riots, by labors, by sleepless nights, by times of hunger, by purity, by knowledge, by patience, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, through weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left through glory and dishonor, through slander and good report, regarded as deceivers, yet true, as unknown, yet recognized, as dying, yet see, we live. 
as being disciplined yet not killed, as grieving yet always rejoicing, as poor yet enriching many, as having nothing yet possessing everything. How many of us would sign up for Paul's life? How many of us thought about when we thought about Christianity and giving our life to Jesus that we had this possible reality in mind for our lives? I know I didn't. I know nobody shared with me the realities of what it meant to follow Christ, that it wouldn't lay up for me at all times a better life, an easier life. As pastors, it's incredibly difficult at times under the weight of the number of, well, just the unique perspective that we have about what actually takes place in the life of this church. As we hear of broken marriages, as we hear of Uh, family members or loved ones passing away as we hear about just the ensnarement of sin that you've been fighting hard, hard against and yet it still seems to own you. That you can hear all of those things, you can know all of those things and you can sometimes find yourself in a place to where you're like, God, this is too much. This isn't what I signed up for. And yet there's there has to be this deepening, this this greater anchor in our lives that would look at the call that God places not only on our lives as pastors, but on your lives as his people to say, God, something has to hold all of these things together. And that's what Paul is saying. He says, in light of everything that I just shared with you about my life, I want you to know what holds me together. What's the glue? And he points to, for the love of Christ compels us. Love is such an ambiguous word. People will use love to refer to a dog and to their spouse. Same word, different meanings. The love that's being described here is not like a love that you have for a dog or cat. It's probably not even like the love that you have for your kids. And there's many parents in this room today, and we like to say, yeah, I love my kids unconditionally but we don't always respond perfectly in that love towards them. Paul is saying, or when he uses the word love, he's describing a type of love that is incomparable. You want to know why Paul would give his life, would lay everything on the line? Is because the love of Christ. He's come to the conclusion that there is no other love like that out there. There's a group that, called Commission, who had a song called Ordinary Love, and it, go, and it talks about how the ordinary just won't do. I need a love that's pure and true, and I can only find it in you, Jesus. Is that not the experience of you and I who know Christ? If I were to ask the question, where were you when you encountered Jesus? What was your life like when you were living for yourself? In what state of mind and soul and spirit were you in? Because the reality in the Christian testimony is not that we found Christ, but that Christ found us. Paul is going to say, one, he's going to say, look, I'm not even trying to draw your attention to what my motivation being. Yes, I love the Lord, but he's pointing us to something different. 
He's pointing us to the reality of my love for Jesus is not enough to lead me to lay everything up bare. However, Christ's love for me, that when I think about what he's done for me, when I think about all he's brought me through, I can do nothing but praise him, right? I can do nothing but render worship to him because I fully tasted of this goodness. This love is not selfish. This love is not conditional. This love was, is a choice. God choosing to demonstrate and to make us the recipients of love that he didn't have to offer us. The generosity of the love towards us is that God would do for us what we couldn't do, that God would give to us what we didn't even know we needed, and yet in him doing that, we stand back as those with our arms open just as recipients of a free gift. Paul says, the love of Christ compelled me. But let me define that a little bit for you. If one died for all, then all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Paul's understanding of God's love was that one, when he says, if one died for all, then all died. That word for actually means in the replace of. Paul is actually saying that I understand, I've come to the conclusion, you, I don't need any more convincing that there actually was one who died for all. There was actually one who died in my place, that I am the one who should be in that sentence, that I died as a result of my sin. And yet he says, no, I've come to the conclusion that Christ died in my place. And if Christ had to die for all, then that means that all were desperate and in need of Jesus dying for them. This is the beauty of why we even think about missions as a church is because we understand that there are those in our neighborhoods, in our communities that Christ has died for. That there are people out there who are lost and God has already chosen that one day they will be his. And as a result, we as his people, we, those who have been changed by this very love, we say that Christ is not just for you and I. That Christ is not just for Buckhead or East Atlanta or Sandy Springs or Norcross or Woodstock. But that, no, what Christ has done, no, it's for you as well. I'm compelled to live in such a way as to make known to all that Christ has actually died for them. This is not to say that all would be benefits of Christ's love. Because he goes on to say that, and he died for all so that those who live, drawing distinction that the actual effects of Christ's atoning work on the cross would be applied to some. However, Paul has made it his aim to go and to tell everyone. When you think about your life, when you think about the way in which you even are living today, did it ever come to mind that when you accepted Jesus, that your life no longer was your own? Do you look at the love of Christ as being the very thing that purchased you for himself? That the love of Christ and you coming into knowledge of who Jesus is, that that is the very thing that 
Your commitment to him means that God, my talents, my treasures, my job, my career, my wife, my kids, my words, my intellect, my bank account are all yours. They're all yours. And so when we sit here and we sing these songs and we think about what it means to live for Jesus, Paul wants us to understand at the very elementary, at the very like baseline of what it means for him and what it means for us to be Christians is to be folks that surrender all, to be folks that lay everything on the line. But he doesn't just stop there. Let's keep going. Second Corinthians 16, he says, from now on then, in light of what Christ has done for us, in light of now being alive, in light of knowing his love, he says, we don't know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know him. Let's stop there. In light of what Christ has done for me, in light of what Christ has done for us, he's given us new sight. The product of being changed by Jesus is he begins to realter the way in which we see everything. There's these glasses called incronum glasses. And they were designed because there are these people who have lived their entire lives and all they could ever see is either in black and white or very dim. They couldn't identify colors well. And so they created these glasses to help people actually see the reality that was around them. So if you go on YouTube and you type in glasses that help people see colorblind or glasses that help colorblind people see, you'll see these videos and many of them are titled, it's become a contest, try not to cry. And so as you watch these videos, this is one in particular of this father who for probably 50 something years had lived his life not being able to see clearly not being able to see things in proper perspective. And his children, now grown, they bring to him these glasses. And so he starts to unravel the box and he begins to open it up and he takes the ribbon out and he sees these glasses and he really has no idea what they are. And so they just say, dad, dad, just trust us. Go ahead and put the glasses on, put the glasses on. And so his father, he takes off his other glasses and he begins to slowly bring them to his eyes And for a moment, he's shocked, and so he puts it down because he he saw something he had never seen before. And then slowly, they have to encourage him, no, Dad, no, no, Dad, put the glasses on. And so he puts the glasses on, and there's beautiful flowers all around, and there's beautiful trees. And for the very first time, he's seeing color. And it's in that moment where he finally gazes to one of his daughters, And for the first time, he peers into her eyes and he sees her blue eyes and he begins to weep. He had never seen the person that he loved, the person that he knew, the person that he had raised. He had never even known that she had blue eyes. The Christian life, what, what Paul is saying here is that when I encountered God, everything changed. For the first time in my life, I looked at life entirely differently. God opened my eyes. He brought light into my darkened heart. He removed the scales. And for the first time, I can see God for who he is. 
And not only can I see God for who he is, but now I can see people for who they are. When I got saved, one of my greatest regrets in knowing Christ was having not grown up in the church. I remember coming to faith and hearing about Jesus, and my only response was, why hadn't anyone tell me that before? I failed for 20-something years. I had wasted my life. And you're telling me that this God existed? That this same God that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, why hadn't anyone told me? I had never heard about David. I had never heard about John. I had never heard about any of this. And yet it was at that moment that looking behind me, I would look back and say, God, so much time was wasted. I wish I could get those 20-something years back only to realize that no, God, God, I don't want to give my life anymore to those things. I want to give my life to Christ. I don't see the same way, Paul says. I give my life to the servants of others because I recognize that people are not just people. That there's a dignity that God has given each and every human being. And that if there's a dignity, if there is a soul that every single one of us possess, then what does that mean? That means that every person that I walk by, every clerk at the grocery store, every neighbor down the street, every police officer that I encounter, every person that I walk by on my daily job, a jog down the belt line is an actual soul. And if they're an actual soul, then that means that they have a destination. And if they don't know Jesus and they die in their sins and they die apart from him, that means that I know God to be true and that he is not a liar, then that means that they will spend eternity apart from him. I can't spend my life on trivial things knowing that there are people who God will place in my life, who he intends for me to be the vessel in which I share, he shares his hope and his message. This is his conclusion, that I no longer see people differently because I no longer see Christ differently. Some of us, we've been in church so long that we've forgotten what people who don't ascribe to Christianity actually think about Jesus. Over the last three, four months, we've gone out on a regular basis in this neighborhood, on these blocks up and down the street, and we talk to people. And one of the questions that we we ask them is, hey, in light of all of the brokenness in this community, in what ways do you think the church can help? Over and over again, we hear similar responses. Christianity, oh, that's the white man's religion. Christianity, the ways that the church can help, Oh, we don't know y'all. We don't know Christians. John shared the story last week that, oh yeah, um, the Muslims are here with us, we know them. The black Hebrew Israelites, they're here, we know them. But Christians? Oh, they just drive in two hours, drive out. Six days later, come back, drive in, drive out. We don't know y'all. Over and over again, we hear statements like, you know don't nobody F with the church. Fool, that is. Don't nobody think the church is relevant anymore. Y'all don't speak to my illnesses and my circumstances. We don't want nothing to do with the church. And yet in those conversations, whether with a drug dealer or the gang member or the elderly folk or the white 
um, a middle-class person that's moving to this neighborhood. In all of those conversations, we hear similar ideas about who Jesus is. A moral figure, a good person, but he's not God. He's not someone I can look to to find any hope or any pleasure in this life for. Paul would look upon his church and he would say, y'all, I don't see anybody from a worldly perspective anymore. I don't know Jesus like that. Because if we were to answer the questions of how many of us came to faith, we thought the same thing about Jesus. We saw him the same way at one point. But he ends with this promise. In light of his changed view, in light of the way he sees Christ, the way he sees people, the love of Christ that now compels him, he starts with, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. That right there, that verse right there is enough for us to rejoice, to run around this building, to shout and leap, because that's the only hope of what our God provides his people. That there actually is a God who would take anyone, take anyone. When you drive down Joseph E. Lowry and you see the prostitutes on the street, do you think that if anyone, if them, when you drive down RDA and you see the homeless dude on the corner who's covered in his filth, do you think if anyone be in Christ, he can be a new creation? When you think of your own life, there may be someone here who don't know Jesus. When you think of your own, own life, do you see yourself in that category? If anyone, if anyone is in Christ, he can be a new creation that the old has passed away and see the new has come. That is our hope. That is our experience to which you and I can now come together and we can say as a church, God, there is a God who would look upon your circumstances and he's not intimidated by them. But if he were to choose to grab a hold of you, to constrain you, to allow you to taste of his love, that you too can be new in Christ. He says, everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the word, the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. For us, Cornerstone, as a church, one of the things that we want to impress on all of us is the reality that being a part of this church is not an individual game. That being a member of this church requires our participation. That it's not enough for 20% of our church to be looked to in order to carry the other 80% of the work. That the reality is that God has called and brought you here for a purpose. And beyond that purpose, individually, he's called you to be his ambassador. 
And to be an ambassador is probably not a familiar term for you and I. But to be an ambassador of Christ actually means to speak on behalf of the king who has sent you. It actually means to be a representative, doing the very thing that the person would do if he were in your place. It's an extension of the ministry and the work that Jesus did for those three years to which he now sits on the throne and he says, I did the work, I modeled for you what it looks like, so now you as my church, go and tell the world, be reconciled to God. Do you look at your life as that's part of your responsibility? Do you think of yourself as an ambassador to speak up in your classrooms, to speak about the things that God would desire, who he is, to communicate that to your coworkers? To share that with family members, do you view yourself as a representative of God himself? Paul doesn't say that he gave this ministry only to him. Paul actually says that he's given that to us. A ministry of reconciliation. The pastors and leaders of this church are not the only ones who have a ministry. The person that you look up to, that you're like, man, they're killing the game. That's not the only person that God has actually given ministry to. God has given ministry to every single one of his followers. And the new identity that he gives to us is that we are his ambassadors. We are those that are sent out to go and say, God is making his appeal through us. Be reconciled to God. You may think of that and feel... Like that's a crushing responsibility. Who am I to actually tell other people and be a representative of what Christ has done for you? And in our own strength, it is. And in our own ability, that is a humongous responsibility that we all would fail miserably at. However, the grace of God is evidence in that God is not calling us simply to do or to be reconcilers, or to be ambassadors, he's pointing at our identity, who we are, who God has actually made us to be. What we do flows out of the reality of who we actually are. One cannot be a representative of Christ as an ambassador if he has not tasted or experienced the new creation that God says he provides to all his people. You can't make a cat act like a dog. You can't make a gerbil act like a bird, right? A gerbil is created to do, to dig, to burrow. A bird is created to fly. Paul is saying that the reality of the Christian life is that God makes you an ambassador and part of your stamp, your seal that's been given to you is that you would go and you would actually have passions and desires to actually go and to tell other people about Jesus. So as we sit here today, there is no amount of guilt tripping that I can do that can convince you to actually live the life that God died for you to live. There's no amount of probing and encouraging and stomping. There's nothing that I can do to get you all, to get myself even, to actually live the life that God has called us to do. 
God is so big that he would say, I would call the people to myself and I would change their hearts so much to where they would delight in doing these things. That sharing your faith is not seen as a burden, but a privilege. A privilege. The king, the God of the universe chooses you and I to be his representatives. Think about that. Think about how jacked up your life is. Think about how broken you are. Think about how just last night what you was doing. And yet God says, no, I'm going to take this blemished and broken and fractured and imperfect being and I'm going to change their life. I'm going to change their heart. And I'm going to work in them and produce these greater affections and desires to where we start to see, and the things that I used to love, I don't love anymore. The things that I actually hated, I actually love. And now when I hear about what God is actually asking of me, I rejoice in it because it's a privilege. I get to do this. We get to preach. We get to share the good news. We get to worship in here. We get to pray. We get to... You name it. The heart begins to leap after God. Begins to take joy and pleasure in knowing that, God, you love me. And now I get to serve you. If you view God as a dictator, then when he asks you to do something, it will always seem as a burden. If you view God only through the lens of Constantly obey, 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 obey. Then when he calls you to something that's hard, you'll question if it's actually worth it. You'll question your obligation to him or your allegiance to him. But if a king is the first one to take the step, is the first one to demonstrate his love to you, is the first one to say, I'm going to sacrifice everything for you first, I'm going to lay down my life first so that when I call you to lay down yours, you know it was love. It was love. I haven't known a love like that. And so the question for us as his people is, one, how do we see God? Do we see what he asks of us as burdensome? heavy, irrelevant, God, I can make a better use of my time? Or do we see a verse like this that says, I've given to you the ministry of reconciliation. I've called you to be ambassadors of Christ. I'm going to actually make my appeal through you and allow you to plead on my behalf to others to say, be reconciled as well. One of the hardest things to do is that when you go and you share about who Jesus is with somebody and you're praying that God would open their hearts to actually see and believe that to be true, is that when you feel like they're on the cusp, on the very cusp of placing their trust in Christ, their amen in everything that you're saying, and then at that moment of making a decision, in that moment of giving their life to him and trusting him as Lord and Savior, They tell you, I'm good. 
Now, I believe all that to be true. That's a great thing for you. But I'm going to keep on living and doing. Yeah, I'm going to keep figuring this thing out. And as you do that over and over and over again, discouragement can set in. Because you're like, God, I'm just trying to be faithful. God, we know this to be true. We know of your love. And yet, doing these things are hard. It's hard. However hard it may be, it's worth it. However hard it may be at times, it's worth it. Because to say that I trusted in Christ means that there is a king who is on his throne and he looks down on the labors in which I am doing to please him and not one thing will escape his eye. That's why he can say your labor is not in vain. That's why he can say that time you prayed with your coworker that it doesn't seem like it led to an actual conversion or decision for Christ. He would say, keep on praying because your labor is not in vain. That's why we can walk these streets week after week and month after month praying for those that every single person that we actually on the streets, house that we walk by, every single person that we come across. And we can tell them about Jesus and we can not to earn God's love, but as a evidence of God, we're grateful for what you've done for us. We're going to keep doing that because we know that our labor is not in vain. That four years in, for those who have even been here, for, or have been here from the beginning, for those who have just become members, when you give yourself to something over time and you don't have a hope that what you're doing is actually worth it, you're going to give up. You're going to quit. You're not going to want to show up at the prayer line, the prayer walks. You're not going to want to show up at the outreaches. You're not going to want to tell people about Jesus. But if you know that there's a God who sees those things, those efforts, and says, in my timing, not yours, I will do what, I, what I've planned to do from the very beginning. And then you hear stories shared about how God would use somebody like Mike Davis to be in the right place at the right time, to share the hope of Christ with somebody and to see that brother come to faith. There's something sweet about that. And those types of stories, whether Bob or Mike or Marcellus or too many people to to name, those types of stories are not just reserved for them. That usefulness is not just reserved for them. That is what God desires to do in your life. That is how God desires for you to live, trusting that there are good works that I've planned for you, works for you to walk in, and that you don't have to live for cheap substitutes. Here's the most convincing proof as to why Paul would go as far to say, we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. He says this, There's no possible way to convince somebody into following Jesus. However, what we do want people to understand is that there is a God who became sin for them. So he says, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Our appeal to all is that there actually is one who has paid your sin debt. That there actually is someone who can grab a hold of your life and to, in a moment, change it completely forever. Who can 
give to you and shower on you a love like you could never imagine and never hope for. That somebody who, in light of seeing your mess, became your greatest mess for you and stood in your place so that you didn't have to. And it's this Jesus who had become sin for you. I've yet to meet one person. I've yet to meet one person that could claim that they have never sinned before. Never have I met somebody. I'm not saying that they're not out there, but I've yet to run into one. The problem that other religions don't address is what do you do with that sin? Who is going to pay for that? It doesn't just vanish in, in, in thin air. There's a debt. So who is going to pay that debt? The hope that we give the world is that Jesus paid that debt. Jesus took your deposit upon himself. He took that and he paid it off with his blood. He paid it off with his life. And so we can be those who don't look at our faith and don't look at Jesus in a way that would say, how can I do the least for Christ? How can I just get by for Christ? I think Kanye said it best last week. How can we always be thinking about doing the less when he did the most? So true. And yet our lives sometimes, we find ourselves in a place where we're just like, God, I just, this is all I can give you. This is all I got for you. So Cornerstone, I want to encourage us as we think about mission, as we think about why we do what we do, it's not because we put confidence in our strategies. It's not because we're putting confidence in our ability to craft some clever way of winning people to Jesus. No. I could have stood up here and told you about all of the great things that we've made, the plans we've made for this year. But what would that do? But if I stand here and I remind you of the great love that Christ has given you, if I remind you of what Christ had to pay in order to make you being able to share your faith possible, if I remind you about the lengths that Christ has gone in order for you just to be sitting here today, then perhaps when Jesus holds before you his purpose for your life, to be an ambassador, to be those who go and call people, be reconciled to God, to those who make the glory and the fame of Jesus spread like a beautiful aroma across this neighborhood and the surrounding communities and this city and the entire world, that we would be willing today to say, God, wherever you want me to go, I'll go. God, wherever you want me to do, I'll do. That God would break us of our sense of wanting to be in control and that he would remind us that a life lived for me is a life not wasted. There will be a day where you stand before your God. Where Paul would say in verse 11 that everyone will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for what they did in this body. That's not just for the people outside. That's for you and I. Bear the evidences of the change that God tells us are clear indicators in the life of his people. Live for more than just yourselves. Live for Christ. Let us pray.
Father, we recognize our need and that it's moments like this where our mind can even race off to all of the things we have to do after this church service. That our hearts can feel as though other things compel us more than your love. There's better things out there with far greater incentives than faithfulness to you. And my prayer today, Father, is that we would soberly evaluate our own lives, not questioning the fact that we're yours, but questioning the ways in which we've used our lives. Father, I find the need for myself to just repent and confess that, God, I don't always have this in view. I don't always have this in mind when I think of what it is you've called us to, the privileges that you give us, and Father, the call that you place on our life to actually go and be your witnesses. Father, would you help us today to start first by confessing to you, Father, we've missed the mark. Father, we've been selfish with our lives. Father, we place greater value on other things more than we have valued the sacrifice that you've made for us. Father, would we be like Paul who says the love of Christ compels me and I'm willing to risk it all for you because you risked it all for me. Father, only your Holy Spirit can do work like that in our lives. Only your Spirit can produce righteousness, holy ambition, desires to live for you, God. So we ask that you would do just that. We pray for those who may not know you in this place, who have spent 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years maybe living for themselves. Father, at the hearing of what you've done for them, of who you are, of what you are calling them into, reconciliation with God, would that be enticing enough for them to surrender their lives to you this day? Father, you are the God of salvation. You are mighty to save. And so we pray that your spirit even now will convict the hearts of your people. Convict us of sin, but also, Father, point us towards your grace and your mercy. It is sufficient for us.